Except for really, I focused on the part effort. <laughs> the effort part uh, was very, very important uh, in my mind, very strong in my mind at that time. Uh, because I wanted to try really, really, really hard. It's like all of the energy, uh, all of the strength uh, of my life, I wanted to. Uh, apply as much and as strongly as I could uh, to cultivation and practice of this path. Uh, because uh, as a young person, I know now still nearly a teenager, right? Uh, in not quite yet 50. <laughs> so still nearly a teenager. <laughs> uh, but as a, uh, as a teenager, uh, with my hair on fire, greatly concerned for uh, the suffering that I saw in the world, uh, in politics, uh, in uh, distribution or non-distribution of resources, uh, in nuclear concerns, in environmental degradation, in seeing all the pain and suffering that there was between spouses and partners or those who weren't spouses and partners anymore but had been once or wished to be but somehow couldn't be uh, or between parents and children and brothers and sisters and all these kinds of things i saw so much strife and angst and conflict and difficulty and uh, uh, and you know so much much struggle and all of this, and I felt like, oh, is it all just crazy? Is there any sense to it? Is there any purpose? Is there any meaning? Uh, and uh, uh, does anyone even actually know or really have a clue about any of it truly? And does this life really have any meaning, or is it all some kind of like uh, uh, random chaos? Uh, and we're all just like 
what is it, bumper cars, kind of just <laughs> bumping into each other, <laughs> or like atoms or cells in the bloodstream bumping into each other here and there, and then going, going on our way um, like that. So I had um, a strong, a strong doubt and a strong sense of uh, inquiry and uh, interested in applying my energy really, really strong and, uh, and hard to try to break through what seemed to be like the great mass or impenetrable wall of ignorance. Does any of this sound familiar to the Venerable here? No, I know. My Venerable Dhamma sister here. So I practiced Zen or Chan, Sun. For, for some time and then like to practice the really kind of hard and rigorous things like sitting up all night or bowing very many times or, or this kind of thing, uh, thinking that I could break through that wall by pushing somehow harder, by concentrating my energy harder. Yeah? And yet, uh, somehow it's so strange. It's like sometimes the harder you push, the stronger the wall becomes. <laughs> so funny. So funny how that can be. Yeah? And in fact, uh, I found that so strange sometimes then by applying myself very, very hardly. It was only when when I just utterly exhausted myself, then that I could finally deeply relax and let go. <laughs> and then there was the opening and the clarity and the ease. But I thought that came from having tried so hard. And like the story of Ananda, after the Buddha passed away, you know, Ananda uh, was with the Buddha for many years, had an audiographic memory, was able to memorize every single teaching that he heard. Thanks to him, we have all these teachings from the Buddha, middle-length discourses and long discourses and connected discourses and numerical discourses of the Buddha. All these great teachings, so many of them, are supposed to have been remembered by the Venerable Ananda before he was even awakened himself. He just hung around very close with the Buddha as his personal attendant and then was able to keep it all with his audiographic memory. After the Buddha passed away, for the sake of preserving all the Buddha's teaching when the Sangha gathered, there's this story about only inviting those who were arahants, who were completely awakened to the meeting, but who had heard so much was not awakened yet. So why I'm remembering this story is because as the story goes, then he, he made this great attempt to, through the night, like have to be awakened by the next morning if he's going to be able to uh, uh, participate in this great uh, gathering, assemblage of uh, awakened ones. Um, yeah. So he's trying so hard, and then finally, when it's just coming to the crack of dawn, 
Then he finally bends down, gives up, lets go. And as he let go, his mind opened. As the Pali text says, like the great dark was torn apart. Yes? And he too became one of the fully awakened ones. I'm just remembering this story now. Yes? Uh, just because of uh, something, perhaps something a little similar there. Coming back later, coming back to the early Buddhist teachings, Theravada Buddhist teachings. In my time with Zen or Chan, we often uh, chanted about uh, great love and great compassion, or great loving kindness and great compassion. Great loving kindness, great compassion of the Buddha, and that is like the reason for the, the heart of the Buddha and the Sangha to pass on and share this teaching, and yet how to actually touch into that heart. For me, as coming back to the early uh, Buddha's teachings, coming back to the, the cultivation of the practices of loving-kindness. Not that I hadn't met that practice embodied in monastics, embodied in lay, keen and wonderfully practiced lay Buddhists. I had met that in them, embodied in their practice. But I didn't understand how to actually practice, how to cultivate and develop that myself. And I found specific teaching then about this with mindfulness and clear awareness, developing mindfulness and clear awareness, and then bringing the cultivation of practice of kindness, loving kindness and compassion with directions for how to touch into it myself and then grow and expand upon that, even not only reading about boundless, infinite loving kindness and compassion of the Buddha and of the awakened ones, and so honoring and revering that, but how to actually do that with the mind, do that with the heart. Such a beautiful and amazing thing to cultivate and develop and really feel then deeply in the body, deeply in the body. It's like, in a way, for who practices mindfulness of the body and develops inner sight or insight into the body, even down to the cells, the shift of energies, the shift in tightness of muscles or posture that comes from a single thought or a single perception even like the difference in how we hear a car passing, whether it's frictive, and the tension and the shifting in posture and the pains that can come from that, even just from the simple and uh, somewhat benign, uh, maybe it's benign, maybe it's not benign, passing of the car. But I'm not talking about whether it itself is benign or not, I'm talking about how that's being received and held in one's own body and mind. That part, whether that part is benign or not, whether that part is 
kind, caring, easeful, compassionate, um, or whether it's afflictive, whether that part is harmful or not. Seeing that in the, in the body, in it, the shifting of the, the muscles, and just momentary, so quickly, so quickly, yes? And making the intention that no part of the body should be harmed by harmful awareness, by harmful thinking, directed internally or directed externally. Because when one becomes so sensitive, really so subtly sensitive in this kind of way, then you become sensitive to the dynamics between people. And are they kind or not? Are there underlying tensions? Is there something something going on, some manipulation or control, some subversion or oppression, some these kinds of things, and then sensitive to what that is in the body. And even the body then can become like a kind of a, anyway, like a reader, in a way, of what kind of energy there is in that, what kind of quality. Is it kind? Is it open? Is it spacious? Or is there something else going on that's not so healthy, that's not so well, yeah? We can become sensitive then to that and really see and feel and know that. And if we purify our intention, if we're cultivating the Noble Eightfold Path and we work then with view, with vision, and move into intention, right intention, and the intention of kindness, the intention of benevolence to all as to oneself, to self and to other, internally and externally, the intention of compassion, the intention of appreciation, the intention of the kind of love and kindness and compassion and appreciation that passes through absolutely everything, that touches into the unconditional, that transcends conditions, that isn't reliant upon any condition other than just the intention, just the pure, clear, and beautiful intention of kindness and benevolence and goodwill itself, only dependent upon that. Yes, just that intention, just that volition, and then it's being enacted. It's being allowed to go live in this system of body and mind. We have it built in, every single one of us, yes? If you look at the young child when held in their mother or their father's arms, when held closely and you see like between their eyes the connection that's there, if, there's, if, if there isn't such a distortion, which certainly does happen, but if our innate program or wiring for that kind of love is allowed to be active, oh, so amazing, we're wired for it so deeply, right down into the very, you know, basic, basic processes of this body and what it is to have a human, human heart and mind, yeah? So all of us, all of us have that in its depth of purity and beauty, 
like mindfulness for all of the children also. As young children, you can see naturally how attentive, how aware, looking at the flower, absorbed deeply in rapture, looking at this, completely present and absorbed in that. It's just what we're made with, just what we come with, having a human body and mind, the natural ability to do that, and for the love to turn and connect with love, whether it's with the flower, or whether it's with a small animal, or whether it's with a parent or a sibling, or whoever it may be with. Even sometimes you see the young animals, even different species, but sometimes they're like so sweet with each other like this, yes? so, so beautiful that we come with that. And yet, sometimes then afterwards this happens and that happens and the other thing happens and our natural ability and propensity for these beautiful qualities gets shut down or gets changed into something else or gets channeled into something that's different than that. Yeah? sometimes covered over, sometimes buried, but still, still part of the basic, I'd say like basic programming, basic design, basic functional design of the human body and mind to be able to be aware and to have this kind of love and kindness. Even if we can't remember ever having it, still it's there and with this cultivation with this practice we're able to touch into and able to develop means able to if that got blocked if it got twisted if it got suppressed if it got changed able to touch back down into it uncover clear up open up clear out and it's there doesn't have to be created even, just allowed, you know, it's like just taken out of the box, (laughs) unwrapped and opened up, and there, uh, that's there, and uh, then allowed, allowed to grow, allowed to spread, uh, allowed to become stronger, allowed to re-establish within uh, this this mental and physical system, yes? Such a good thing to do this. Then I found, experiencing for myself, oh, this is a very good thing to do, yeah? It doesn't necessarily need to come from outside, from grace. Sometimes I know it seems like that, yes? But if we didn't have that in our heart, in our bodies and minds somehow, then I think we could never recognize it. It's like we're only able to see and know the things through what we have going on. Only that. If we don't have it, if we didn't have it, we'd never even be able to to recognize and know what that is. And it couldn't turn on in us, yes? But it does. It can and it does, yeah. And when it does, even if something is foolish, even if something is mistaken, not to say that that is, 
still it can be met, still it can be received, potentially, within the space of kind awareness. So who listens to the recording later? I'm not sure, it might be the sound of a helicopter coming down very nearby. So <laughs> It's an emergency can, at the hospital and they're going to transport that person to yes? San Francisco. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, there's a hospital yes. just so, across the railroad tracks. How great, how great, yeah? This is something you know. Also, in past, I used to, when I would hear the sound of a siren, I would feel stress and angst. Stress, angst, and anxiety. I would hear that siren sound, and then actually it's out of a kind of compassion. In my body there would be like, it's like ringing out a long rag or something like, oh, <laughs> this stress and angst and anxiety arising out of compassion, thinking, oh, something awful has happened, something terrible has happened, oh no. Yeah, but then that way of being with it in compassion caused stress and tension and angst and anxiety. Now, at our old Vihara that was down in Fremont in the East Bay, uh, the lady who lived next door had a lot of dogs and a lot of cats. She adopted all of the feral cats in the neighborhood, in fact. Don't even know how many cats she had and also the dogs. So whenever anyone came in the door of our Vihara, the doggies would put up a whole chorus, all of them together, and all together they would, I think first there were five dogs and then one passed away and then there were four dogs. <laughs> and it wasn't quite as much as a, of a chorus with four dogs as five dogs. But there was a fire station not so far away, and so just when the sound of the, f the fire, the, the sirens would start, the wow, like this, then the doggies also with some kind of sympathetic resonance would start to howl very much all together like the sound of the, the fire truck siren. Yeah, and so then the siren would be going, and then the doggies would be howling, and then some other doggies in the neighborhood would also pick it up, and then all be like the coyotes at our hermitage, they'd all be kind of howling, resonating together. And at first I was, at first I was, oh dear, someone's suffering, oh dear, something awful has happened, maybe a car crash, maybe a fire, maybe someone's had a heart attack, oh dear, and I'm like, oh, together in my heart, and I'm like, oh, no. I, I would do that then together with the doggies who are all in compassionate, sympathetic resonance together with one another, oh, 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 like when I was in South Korea also, the ladies had this morning, kind of morning chant when someone passed away. I go, I go. It means, oh, wherefore the pain and suffering. I go, I go. And the Buddhists would say, I go, chung senga, I go, chung senga. I mean, oh, wherefore the pain and suffering of sentient beings. Oh, oh. And we like, cry and lament together. Yeah? Um, 
Something happened though with the doggies during that time that, you know, they're so cute and I grew to love them. And then something shifted and I thought, wait, it's like some connection with the, the love, grow, growth of love for the dogs. And then I had the idea one day when the fire truck started and uh, and then the doggies were starting to howl together, I had the thought, oh, how amazing is that? That there are people in our world who have made it their part-time job or full-time job just to be on hand to rescue, to go to the aid of and to rescue someone who's gotten into trouble someone who's gotten into an accident or had a heart attack or things have caught on fire or they've gotten a fight with each other or fallen down or whatever or the cat's up the tree whatever it may be uh, but they're just waiting they're just there waiting and then ready to go to it rather than you know so many of us I think if we knew something awful was happening we think it's very reasonable we want to get as far away from it as possible <laughs> And I tell you, oh dear, when I went and I first experienced the situation in uh, Southeast Asia for women in Theravada Buddhist monastic life, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, many wonderful things, many wonderful things, and also many things, oh dear, how can that be, oh dear? Um, but difficult things, and I experienced also a lot of friends who who did that, and then also it's like no, no, I'm staying away, staying away from that. Too much pain and suffering. No, how can you be with that? How can you hold that? How can you be with that? No, the drama and difficulty and pain and suffering that there is. Uh, this has reminded me of the uh, uh, of the fire, of the fire trucks, and uh, when recognizing the goodness in the intention, I think it's just imagination, just imagination, really. What do I know of their intention, or of the intention of the firefighters? How do I know? Just imagination. And I thought, I recognize the goodness of their intention, how they're trying. Maybe they're having a bad day and they're actually not touched into that good intention. I know that happens sometimes too. That's why I think the Buddha recommended when you're doing something good, be sure to remember your good intention. Sometimes we had good intention and we're involved in something good, but somewhere along the way we forget. So one of the one of the practices of mindfulness that we're asked to cultivate is when doing something generous that we intended to be generous, when doing something kind that we intended to be kind at the time of actually doing it, to be sure to recollect that, that our intention then fully pervade the action, that it not get separated out and divorced 
somehow. So there was the good intention, and now there's the action happening, but they don't see each other. They're out of sight of each other, and how to, how to bring them back uh, together again. Yes? So, uh, this is what's arisen uh, to mind uh, in, uh, in reflection, uh, just reflection on this subject uh, now this evening. Uh, but I think, as I said earlier, uh, I would like to ask back to you about the question that I was asked uh, to speak about. Uh, I don't know if you may understand uh, through my, in a way it's direct, but in a way it's also indirect and subtle. Uh, people have asked me uh, for entering into a situation where there had not been parity or equality for, uh, for women, uh, where the tradition of, uh, of, of ordination, way of training and way of life that we believe to have been established by the Buddha for both women and men uh, was, uh, was lost and not continued for, for women, how to be able to be with situations of um, where there's uh, lots of things that can potentially be causes of uh, uh, grave suffering, uh, how to be able to be uh, with that, with kindness, uh, and uh, how that can be uh, transformative, transformative. How we can know that sense of transformation, not just as an ideal, uh, but really down to our very bodies in the fiber of our breath and our embodied existence and awareness just in ourselves and also in how we choose to live and how we choose what we choose to do, what we choose to dedicate our time and effort and energies uh, to, and uh, uh, thus also what our communion is. Uh, with with one another and communion and community uh, like Sankha uh, you know have a have a, a shared root a shared root with each other uh, the shared part and then the human the human part yes in uh, in their meaning so I would like to uh, now uh, and my small uh, monologue and change to dialogue uh, and to, to hear from you and see what uh, what comes forth. Yes, please. Oh, there's nothing like having a belligerent and annoying friend uh-huh. to help us practice loving kindness and mm. compassion. Yes. Or uh, a husband or a wife yes. or a teenage child yes. and those um, or someone who is totally uninitiated in the Dharma and is completely materialistic mm. and for themselves mm. and when when I'm surrounded with people like that it's it helps me to be compassionate toward all beings. Hmm. 
because some people say, oh, you should surround yourself with people who are highly developed and, mm. you know, so knowledgeable and so compassionate, but there's no challenge in that or very little challenge. Mm. But when you surround, well, you don't have to surround yourself. You just have to know people like that and interact with them in your lives. And it really is helpful for me. It's the people I know, the worst people I know have taught me some of the best life lessons mm. and helped me to be more compassionate. Mm. Well, sadhu to that. I'm glad for you. She's talking about a very strong practice. Yes. Uh, whatever it is for you, being with what presses your buttons is, is certainly, uh, that's certainly one of the hardest places to really, uh, why it presses your buttons is because it's a hard place to really bring your good uh, intentions and uh, and to bring your your depth of understanding to bring your kindness to bring your love to bring your compassion and just by nature whatever whatever that is uh, that's that's a place where somehow you know those avenues have gotten blocked off for you and so that's why that particular situation or that particular person, it's never really the person, it's the, the conditions, it's something about the, the conditions, the dynamics, that in the way it's uh, perceived, in the way it's fabricated uh, in our minds, means the way that we're seeing it and how we're taking it on, how we're taking it in, that's one that's uh, uh, patterned in such a way that it's it's hard to deeply understand. When we deeply understand, it's impossible for compassion to be obstructed. Yes? So, somehow, often it has to do with our sense of self and other, what we think is different uh, than ourselves, but not always. I know this is one thing where the, the understanding gets blocked, is when something seems to be quite different than how we understand ourselves. And we don't see the commonality. We don't see what's shared, or we don't have appreciation for variety and for difference. When we don't have that kind of, uh, that kind of view or that kind of understanding, then the compassion, the compassion gets blocked. I've experienced many times that something happened. Sometimes it's even years later that then something else happened. And then there's deep, there's a shift, an opening of understanding. Oh, that's why. That's what that is. And with that opening of understanding, then the compassion, I don't mean trying to be compassionate, and trying to, really trying to be compassionate. This is a different kind of practice, but with the deep understanding that the compassion naturally comes, I feel in a way almost opposite. I feel like, oh, all these kind of suffering and difficult, and, and people who are like mired in many kinds of causes of suffering, not able to experience the depth of what it is to be human because of living so superficially and materialistically, then I find for that, oh, that's easy to have compassion for. Oh, poor people. Oh, dear. Oh, poor people. 
Paul, I'm so sorry. I wish that you could more fully experience the beauty of what it is to be human and the depth, the full spectrum of that and how, how lovely, how amazing, how profound that is. Oh, I feel so sorry for you. I wish that you could meet such conditions where you could have an experience and share in this. But then now these enlightened teachers, on the other hand, how can we be be compassionate for them? (laughs) What's to be compassionate for? (laughs) Our very good and loving friends and all of this. uh, I mean, if they're the hypothetical perfect friend, right? (laughs) Why have compassion? (laughs) It's only for the very human friends (laughs) that we can have compassion. If they're, if they're fully awakened and all of this and they don't have any kinds of struggles or angst or difficulty and they've got everything 100% perfect all the time, what, have, what compassion for what? <laughs> and why kindness, what need in this kind of thing? Um, so I feel almost the opposite in a way. It seems like it's much, much more intuitive to bring real compassion and kindness uh, to where there's great difficulty and struggle and stress and angst. Uh, and yet I also understand completely what you mean. It's not that I don't have things now and then that also still push my buttons too. And then, then I, I realize this part that I was talking about, something, something's blocked that, you know, that, that sharing, that ability to understand, that communion with each other. And often it's views, and I don't mean right view, Uh, Often it's views, often it's judgments, often it's discrimination, sometimes it's fear. Sometimes we're afraid that if if we recognize that we have something in common with that poor, awful, pitiful person uh, who is doing such, you know, terrible or stupid or misguided things, that, that then what are we afraid of? That if, if we realize we have something shared and something in common, that we may turn those negative judgments back upon ourselves. <laughs> Wouldn't that be horrible? I find, in fact, the really, really strong and challenging thing is those voices and those habit patterns in myself in ourselves, those words that are not not coming from an intention to myself of kindness and care and compassion and, and understanding, but are coming from other things that may have been internalized at some time or, or read or seen in a movie or but for whatever reason, somehow it was internalized, that voice, that view, that, that negative self-view, that judgment, that discrimination. Oh, those are the really, really, really hard ones. And for who clears up those? Even they go into a situation that's fraught with judgments and discrimination. Can you be with it? Can you be with it and be in, in yourself as you are and okay, not harmed, not hurt by that? Because that strength and that stability and that the fullness of the cultivation of those qualities within oneself, yeah, that they become well established and well stabilized. So 
with the sound of the helicopter again. I want to, then when I heard the sirens, I started the practice of thanking them and wishing them well. Wishing them well. We can together put our good heart with our compassion and our love and kindness and wow, here you are in the night working like this to care for people and who knows, you might be having a good day or a bad day or whatever, but you and also that person or people holding with well wishes, with benevolence, with kindness, like holding a swaddling infant uh, or small and ever so cute and beautiful little creature or animal or delicate flower or something like this and just holding that idea, that thought, that perception with uh, the eyes and heart and whole body of, uh, of kindness and goodwill, well wishes, well wishing whatever mental energy there is that can spread by whatever medium, yes? Sending that, sharing that, spreading that around to them and around them and holding them in that way. We can do this with so many difficult situations and really someone might say, that's happening only in my imagination. But even so, even if that were so, and and we really were bounded to a strict line around our bodies like this, which we know scientifically is not so true. It's very porous, things going in and out all the time, sharing and interchange, so not strictly bounded. But even if it were true, and it was just our idea that we were blessing, just our idea that we were healing, still that would be good. Still it would be good because that idea that we were holding in our body and mind of something, whatever it is, that could have been held in a painful way, or could have been held in an afflictive way, could have been held with angst or anxiety, instead becomes held with kindness, in care, in love and kindness and care, in ourselves. But we know What's going on in our bodies and minds radiates out from us. We can see it in others, yes? We can feel it. It comes through sight, comes through sound. We can feel it in touch. Through every one of our senses, it spreads out and is shared amongst us. Part of being human, that this is so important to us and that this works as it does. There is such communion, communication, and sharing, and that that's effective. It's effective. Angry words do harm. Loving kindness and beautiful words and energy does bless and care for others as well as for ourselves. It can sometimes even have a profound effect even one glance of love and kindness, sometimes with someone that you don't even know, just in passing on the street, in a moment, just in a flash, in a second, can actually turn a whole life around. I've experienced it myself, I say from experience. Uh, so, uh, is there another question?
you spoke of the natural flow of love yeah. that we see in children, that we see when we hold our grandchild. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so simple and just mm. there. Then, is that what the path, the Dharma path is? To get back to that just spontaneous, flowing, beautiful love? Um, because it seems we live in a world that shuts that down. I mean, mm. it just, you gotta have your profession, you gotta go to school, you gotta do this, you gotta be serious, you gotta be adult, you got to act like an adult, you got to be. <laughs> Why do we do that? And I see this all around me, such serious yeah. people. Yeah. And they seem to have forgotten how to play. Yeah. They seem to have forgotten how to just, just dig another person. Yeah. Dig the baby or dig the children. Uh. And I, if that's what the Dharma path is, I'm all for it. Because mm. it seems a little sometimes rigid to me. Uh -huh. Sometimes, like you said, you worked so hard, you tried <laughs> so hard, you had to do this and you had to do that. Yes. And, um, and even it seems uncompassionate. Discipline sometimes. can also be a form of love. Discipline can also be a form of love. Yes. Discipline can be? Can't, discipline can be a form of yes, love, but it's so. not necessarily. Well, there is discipline divorced from love and kindness and compassion. Mm -hmm. So this is very important to know. But yes, discipline, discipline can, can be a form of love. Supposing you have a habit to do something that's harmful, yes? How yeah. are you going to stop that? Discipline? Yes, that makes sense. Likely it's going to take some restraint. Likely you're not going to be willing to practice that restraint actually unless you can touch into more self-love. Because why do we do things that are harmful? Why do we do things that are harmful? Often that comes from having internalized negative self-views, holding them and then allowing them to take over the house allowing them to be what we're listening to, allowing them to be what we're being guided by, in the, the voice of a negative self-view, not self. I don't mean self. It's just a temporary construct. Yeah? Uh, so I don't mean self, it's self. I don't mean that. But just, just a view that's been internalized, that if it's brought to care, if it's brought to awareness, if it's brought to understanding in a space of kindness, that can be opened, released, transformed. If kindness and care and understanding are brought to such views, what happens is they become something else. The holding pattern that can sometimes even hold for years, that it's like recycling, 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 same story, same story, same story over and over again, unseen, unknown, or even we try to block it off, or not see it, turn away from it, distract ourselves, try to be more superficial such that we don't feel it, don't see it, don't know it, because we don't know how to be with the pain and the suffering that it is. We don't know how to bring kindness and compassion and awareness to it, and look at it and hold that with such understanding and kindness and awareness, because of that it loops and it loops and it loops. 
and it just recycles like self-flagellation, this harmful thing over and over and over again. Sometimes it's the voice of someone who spoke only once, 20 or even 50 years ago. They said that harmful thing just one time, maybe they even privately regretted it that night and felt so sorry, that was a dumb thing to say. And yet, I've repeated it over and over again, a thousand times, hurting myself far more than they ever could have. And that they likely didn't even want to. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I go, I go, how, how do we do that? Oh dear, but bringing the kindness and love and care and compassion to that, and even we're working with the Noble Eightfold Path, we bring right view and then right intention means intention of kindness and non-harm benevolence to that, then it changes. It comes out of the loop and that energy is liberated to become something else. Like old fermented rotting stuff that's been down in the back of your refrigerator for how long you open up, but you put it in your compost bin with your fantastic worms and this kind of thing, and it becomes this great compost that you grow beautiful flowers and fruit out of. Fantastic, like gold, that compost. It's like gold. Yeah? Really. Can do. Just like the biological elements can pass through this kind of process, so they're all just energy. Really, it's all just energy. We think the things are the way they are because we have this kind of body and sensory equipment, but it's all just energy. Yeah? And our mind is also all the thoughts, consciousness, awareness, all these patterns, memories, also just patterns of energy. And with the shift in the holding pattern, it changes, it transforms and becomes something else. It is ultimately and truly identityless. Like the Buddha mentioned gold, I said this compost is gold. When the gold is heated and warmed up with loving kindness, mindfulness and awareness, you can pour it into any form and it will take the shape of that form. So, I realize now that uh, uh, we had, you see, 30 minutes of meditation, 30 minutes of talk, and 30 minutes of Q&A. Uh, I, I just want to recognize that, uh, that that's so. And um, uh, I, I don't know uh, what you regularly do. I know at our Vihara in Santa Rosa, and I would like to uh, welcome uh, any and all of you to come to uh, visit there, if you would like to uh, sometime, welcome. <coughs> Uh, especially for Tuesday evening meditation, or Friday evening sutta study and discussion, or Sunday uh, late morning welcome for lunch. Uh, we have potluck. Welcome to bring something to share and talk about Dhamma afterwards. Uh, all, all welcome. Uh, for our evening program, it ends at 8.30, but then we also allow who wants to go to go and who wants to stay and ask more questions to until nine o'clock. I very much enjoyed your uh, presentation, Sister. Uh, I was going to share, uh, my, my first encounter with the uh, nuns was about 15 years ago and I, I became part of the Thich Nhat Hanh community. Oh. And 
so I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but apparently Thich Nhat Hanh is quite radical yes. in that the nuns have the same status as the monks, mm -hmm. and they, they walk side by side, and, yes. and there is, you know, anyway, as far as I know, there's equanimity. Mm -hmm. um, so, and so saying that, I'm just kind of wondering, mm -hmm. that, was it somehow your, your, your burning hair or whatever that what you said earlier about, uh, did you, was it unintentional or intentional that you, you, you found yourself in a tradition where part of it was to, through your practice, try to cultivate some equanimity and, uh, and, and, and women's rights and, mm. and that sort of thing. So part, uh, part is fully intentional. Part is fully intentional. Uh, if you were able to hear the, the question. Um, and uh, part, I would say, has to do with what I call karma. Uh, so if it weren't for what I'm calling karma, then I think I wouldn't have had such a, you know, such an attraction or love or appreciation uh, for this tradition, and I might not have been touched uh, in compassion as well. Uh, there are many kinds of various things that we might see every day, and one person is touched by one, and that becomes their life path, and someone else is touched by another, and, and that becomes theirs. Uh, with the walking side-by-side -side part, uh, I lived for a number of years in South Korea. I have a venerable Bikuni mentor uh, who is uh, elder uh, South Korean Bikuni uh, of um, kind of a very great leader of the Sangha. Um, and the community there uh, that I lived with there had uh, same ordination, same training, same education, uh, the same types of uh, opportunities in terms of meditation or dhamma study or teaching or pastoral care, all these things. So I had that experience of being, uh, for, for some time, about a decade, of being so fully supported and of, as they um, walk daily at the sagely city of 10,000 Buddhas, going to the meal uh, hall with uh, two parallel lines, and as they do in the Venerable Tingnat Hans community, uh, when there were um, Dhamma gatherings where both the Bhikkhu and Bhikkhuni Sankhas, the male and female monastic communities, came together, then they're on two sides of the hall or processing in parallel lines like this. I was familiar with that. Uh, but great, great difference um, between uh, that uh, where the Bhikkhuni Sangha has continued uh, in East Asia, that type of practice, and where it hasn't, where the whole modes of being together, um, male and female monastic communities with the, the women's monastic community uh, not having uh, full ordination, uh, as was established by the Buddha in the beginning, but where that died, where that died out. So the the, the opportunities are not equal uh, in any sphere. Uh, in in that case, and it's not only that there's a little disparity. There's quite a lot uh, of of disparity. Yeah. Uh, so I had the experience of both. The the kind of mysterious thing to me was I. I've loved to read the old Pali texts, 
and even in classical Buddhist Chinese, the old, old early Buddhist texts. Uh, and then we find the image in the old, old Pali texts of the Buddha sitting in the center, like if the image of the Buddha was here, and then the men's monastic community sitting on, on one side and the women's monastic community sitting on the, on the other side, both hands of the Buddha like this. If we were in such a hall like that, then you might see the Buddha sitting, sitting here, and then both uh, around the sides like this, with all of you then, then held within the, uh, the, the kind of the, the, the space of uh, um, both uh, genders, uh, monastic uh, community, uh, with with the Buddha in the center like that. So, I've done quite a bit of Vinaya study, which is not nearly so popular as studying Dhamma and Suttas in the United States. Vinaya is our monastic discipline, and I find this image. I found this image in the old Pali text Vinaya. Then I see ah. Well, what the East Asian contemporary Buddhist monastic communities do, they're not doing the new radical, they're doing the old radical. They're doing the old radical from the Buddha's lifetime, where it looks like with his complete enlightenment, you know, all kinds of discrimination like this, that you know, that uh, whatever there was before enlightenment in terms of these things was gone. Gone, completely gone and came to uh, peacefulness uh, in the heart of the Buddha and the way that he then uh, chose, to, uh, chose to live his life together. Uh, now, as a bit of a historian or her historian, uh, I, I recognize that uh, as Buddhism spread into different cultures and in its encounter with Brahmanism and various other traditions, then Buddhism is often praised for its adaptability and this is something that got adapted in different ways over time and space and continues now also to adapt and also different streams. It's like within one river there are various streams and some mainstream, some eddies and, and these things. And uh, we have that within Buddhism also today. But just like the river is not static or frozen, uh, so too the Sangha and our processing path of awakening. So touching into the heart of the Buddha and then uh, if somehow we really fully uh, cultivate and then have experience in this path, that gives us confidence due to our own experience, experiential knowledge and wisdom and awareness about what's natural for the aware or enlightened or awakened heart in terms of interrelationship. Uh, and, you know, then this is something that I find is really a cause for compassion. If our discriminations start to fall away and we sense, you know, then we, we, we start to see things with awakened awareness, if some system or structure or institution or, or this kind of thing tries to, what is it, make one behave otherwise, that part's the strange part. That's part that part's the hard part, yes? But I think with confidence, with, uh, uh, with such good energy, 
I don't want to call it courage, but it's like the heart that gets thoroughly pervaded by love and compassion and understanding and also realizes that what we think, what we say, what we do has effect. It is changing things. It is cre- that is what is creating things all the time. Not only our own life, but also collectively, each one of us together, that is what is creating our human world. As I speak, as we speak, it is an active process that's not frozen anywhere, and we realize the potential in that. And then, in answer to your question, we can make conscious choices. And if the heart is really thinking about benefit for self and other, for the long-term welfare and benefit of, of self and other, then that leads to our livelihood in various in various ways. That right intention flows into and informs what we think, what we say, what we do, and our choice of livelihood, what we choose to apply our energies to, knowing that it does make a difference. It is effective. That is the the communal process of co-creation that is all of our existence and is our world together. So there are many different ways to live human life. And we don't have to be that same voice as those others that you were talking about. We have a chance, we have a choice to live differently and then also be a witness. So someone else who sees that can not only have that other example, but can also have this example. Yeah? Due to our neurobiology, we see something admirable, it turns on those good qualities or has the possibility to turn on those good qualities uh, in ourself. And that's, that's a step in opening the way for living that uh, to be possible for us. It's the active mechanism of compassion built into us. That's how that happens. And I feel like that's why it's so important for all four uh, communities in Buddhism, the men's monastic community and the women's monastic community and the uh, community of laymen and laywomen, even I don't mean to say lay in terms of non-professionals, I mean those who are dedicated, who are not lay really, uh, who are the dedicated uh, practitioners, who are experienced, uh, it's of great benefit to come into contact with each one in terms of us having possibility. Because if we don't see someone else that we identify with somehow, whether it's because of gender or for whatever reason, if we see someone that we can connect with, that opens up that possibility for us. If we don't, or we notice, oh, who I think I am is conspicuously absent from those who are leading or teaching or seem to be practicing well or who are uh, equally valorized by the tradition. If we don't see that, that starts to close down the door of possibility in ourself. Yeah? We do see it, it opens it. 
It's the very rare, rare, rare person who has no inspiring example whatsoever to trigger them that they somehow identify with, that opens their heart and opens up their possibility, is it? Potentiality, activates their potentiality. Who, who can do something just out of the blue? No, there are the things that sparked that. There are the causes and conditions. And Sankha, in Sankha, uh, having the, is it complete, complete, uh, mm, what's the right word? The presence of uh, like each category of people as examples, so important. Part of the brilliance of the Buddha is like plan, his plan for how, how he laid out the Sangha in terms of examples, exemplars, with many different kinds of qualities of different races, of different ethnicities, of different ages, of different social backgrounds, of different genders. A wise choice made, I believe, with full understanding of how we work and what facilitates awakening and us ourselves being able to activate and realize our full and beautiful potentiality as human beings. Whole other realms and worlds of possibility. Not that just you have to do this, you have to do that, and you've got to like trudge, 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 and it's turn, turn, and no fun, and awful, and bad, and uh, this kind of... I mean, of course, only when our mind is black does it look all black, right? <laughs> um, many different ways we can live life, but the examples are so important. That's one reason, personally, why I feel like it's really really important uh, for there to be uh, various kinds of, of examples in this, in this path. Yeah? Uh, ten years ago, a bit more than ten years ago, I went to Thailand and I went to various meditation centers as a bhikkhuni, looking something like this, except for ten years younger. I didn't have the same robe. Um, this, my one set of clothes, this one's only about four years old. So there weren't other bhikkhunis around at that time. Um, more than 99%, maybe more than 99.9% .9 of those I met, both monastics and lay people, had never encountered a fully ordained woman in Buddhism before ever in their whole life. Uh, and many of them had never even uh, heard of it uh, or that it was possible. That wasn't what they had seen. That wasn't the example uh, that they had grown up with. Uh, and so it was quite surprising. And I would see people with this sense of mindfulness of one's own body. One can also sometimes see what's happening with the bodies of others. I would see the lights go on and doors and windows of opportunities opening and people asking, can I do this? It's a natural question. It's such a natural question. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know if President Obama, when he was a little boy, saw the president on TV and was like, can I do that? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? I'm not sure. Um, but people would then ask, 
they would ask and opening up the possibility. Now it's 10 years later and I've seen like even along, I, I took a kind of walking pilgrimage for a while going through areas of the Northeast and up along the Mekong and that area there and up into the North. Now you know how many Bikuni monasteries are growing up along that area. Quite a lot now of women who are there, more than in the United States now. With first the United States was more, now they are far more. Because just, just it's all already there in the culture, but just a shift of perspective and, oh, oh, I can do this too. I can do this. And I'm so happy to see it because, wow, these women are great. They are the really, you know, fantastic, such beautiful hearts and such great dedication and, you know, really these ideas of how to, how to fulfill oneself, one's own practice with a belief that like this it is possible to fulfill the path. It's just an idea, but somehow it got blocked. Like, no, you have to wait to be born again, better luck next life. <laughs> there were a lot of people who thought so. There were. There were. Yeah? But just, just that, opening, opening up and like, oh, wait, can I do this? And they are. They're doing it. Dedicated and sincere ones. I think not in it for the money, not because their parents want them to, not because of gaining in some kind of, what is it, social climbing or this kind of thing. Not for that, because they're sincere, <laughs> because their hearts are there in the right place. It's so, so beautiful, so wonderful, so fantastic. I really want to, Anamotana Sadhu, to the conditions that allow for that to be so for anybody, anywhere, whoever whoever they are, that can get galvanized and think, oh, I can live differently, I can do this. Yeah, there is this chance, there is this opportunity for me too. And thinking, yes, yes I can, right? Oh. The yes I can part I liked about the first President Obama's campaign, the yes I can part. <laughs> I like that part. I didn't follow many other things. I just saw one time about that. But so, that's so important. And it's the big part about the Buddha's awakening, right? Finding out, yeah, actually can do, as a human being can do. Not just a myth, not just a nice story, actually can do. And the effective first teaching the big important thing about it that's supposed to have, you know, shot off a great kind of light or something through the cosmos, according to the sutta anyway, that we chant, uh, is just, yes, it can be communicated to someone else, and they also can do. That's the big, just the, the whole big thing uh, was just, just that means not just for one person alone, because they were super extra special, although we think the Buddha was super extra special, but uh, especially because of not having that example. That's the primary reason. And we think that's very, 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 very rare. To be Buddhanu Bhutang, to awaken in the wake of the awakened one by connection with uh, Buddha or Tama or Sankha, that, that part's not so hard. Rare and precious, yes. Rare and precious in our world, it's true. 
uh, but not so hard as if there's no example, no, no clue, no hint, no spark to turn that on, that potentiality, uh, to, to galvanize it, to activate it uh, in ourselves. Because we're really just working with, with what we actually just, with what we actually have, potential and ability that we have as human beings, but that lots of people somehow forgot about, not developed, don't know, or uh, most sadly, uh, due to negative views, hindering views, might think, no way, not possible. Human life is far more degraded than that. That would be the, so it's a really sad, sad thing, I think. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.